So we're in Acts chapter 2 today. Um, so far in Acts, Jesus told uh, his followers that they were, were going to witness the world about him. They were going to tell the world uh, that Jesus saves from sin. Uh, but first, he said, they needed to wait for the Holy Spirit. They would receive the Spirit from the Father, uh, and they would continue the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So they waited. They were expectant. They, they waited together. It says, as one, they're praying, they're praising God. Certainly, I'm sure they're reading Scripture. They were singing together. They were trusting, and they were ready for what God was going to do. And we come to this day in, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. I was uh, reading about Pentecost, and uh, I read uh, a couple different people that thought that Pentecost was the fifth most important day in history. I'm like, whoa, I know it's important, but fifth most important day. And I, so I think they went um, birth of Jesus, uh, death, resurrection, ascension, and then fifth being Pentecost. So let's jump right in, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, right? We remember the 120 uh, that we read about last week. They believed Jesus when he said that the Father would send the Holy Spirit in power. So on this day, they're meeting together. And most of us probably assume, I assume, that it's in the same upper room. Luke doesn't really specify what house they're in. We just know that they're in a house. And they're together because they trusted that God was going to do what Jesus said would happen, that the Spirit would come. And so there's this eager anticipation. Uh, and these Jewish believers, certainly, they were aware of the Holy Spirit, right? They knew their scriptures. They, they, they could think back through what we call the Old Testament. They knew that right in the beginning, in Genesis, we see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was integral in creation. They, they could tell uh, time after time throughout Scripture where the Holy Spirit would come upon uh, one of God's people and, and do something, right? We remember like Saul, before he became king, he prophesied. Um, there, there are times where the Spirit came uh, on people and gave them dreams and visions. Um, not everyone who, who was a true worshiper of Yahweh, though, received the Holy Spirit. And even those who did, it was this momentary thing. It was, it was temporary. Jesus had talked with his disciples you know, about the Spirit coming. Even before Acts 1, we, we read about Jesus telling them that, that the Lord is going to send this helper. He's going to be your teacher. He's going to guide you. He's going to be, he calls him your counselor. Jesus told them that the Spirit would convict the world of sin, that the Spirit would empower them. Paul, in his writings, right, he talks about spiritual gifts, that every believer is gifted by the Spirit. So what was about to happen would be different than what they were familiar with in looking at the Old Testament. The Spirit was not going to come for a moment, and then when he was done, go. No, this would be a, a different reality for God's people, and they were ready. They were excited for this. So this particular day was Pentecost, which is one of three annual feasts that the Jewish people celebrated. There's a couple different names for Pentecost. One is the Feast of Harvest. Uh, because it was celebrated at the completion of their harvest, right? So they had much to thank the Lord for. As the harvest wrapped up, they celebrated and thanked God. Or it was also called the Feast of Weeks, um, a.k.a. Pentecost. It took, took place 50 days 
after the Passover, uh, towards the end of the intertestamental period. And if you read intertestamental period, if you hear someone say intertestamental period, all that means is between Old Testament and New Testament, okay? The intertestamental period. So between, uh, towards the end of the intertestamental period, um, the Jewish people also began to recognize this as the time that the law was given, believing that the law was given on Mount Sinai 50 days after the Exodus. Now, Luke doesn't explicitly draw out the symbolism here, though it's hard for your mind not to go there, right? We see um, later in this chapter, we won't get to it today, but it's, it's, it's part of this same day that Peter's going to preach. 3,000 souls are, are going to confess that Jesus is Lord after his sermon, right? There's going to be this, this great harvest of 3,000 people that went from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, and we'll, we'll get to that next week. He also doesn't connect the giving of the law, though maybe as you read Acts chapter 2, you hear about the sound of the wind, you hear about the fire, maybe that takes you back to Mount Sinai when God gave the law. And in my mind went to where, where God promises that, that the Spirit is going to give believers a new heart. He's going to write the law on our hearts and our minds. Verse 2, it says, And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we, we see three abnormal or supernatural uh, parts to this. There's this sound of wind, there's the fire, and then the languages. So first, the sound of wind. It, it doesn't say that there was wind. It says that there was a sound. And maybe there was wind, but, but it describes this loud, mighty sound, right? And we, we've all heard loud wind. Actually, just a few nights ago, maybe you had a hard time falling asleep because it was so windy outside. So here are the 120, and they're waiting, anticipating that the Father's sending the Spirit. They're praying, they're reading Scripture, they're singing, who knows what, what exactly they're doing. But suddenly... This mighty sound is in the room, right? Not just like this little whoosh. I know that's a really good wind sound, but, but a, a mighty sound of wind. Jesus had told them that, that there would be power when the Spirit comes upon them. And certainly, or at least I associate power with, with a mighty wind. And it's interesting, maybe you remember this, maybe you already knew this, that in both Hebrew and Greek, the, the words that they have for wind and spirit are the same. So uh, really, it, it isn't that surprising that the place where they're gathered is filled with this loud sound that's like a mighty wind. So whatever the group was doing, right, whether it's reading, praying, just talking about God, whatever they were doing, they, they're they're overcome by this sound. They've forgotten, and, and, and now they're looking around to see what in the world is that that I hear. Their attention is now fixed on what is before them. Now, maybe some of them, as they anticipated the Holy Spirit, maybe they thought right away, is this God giving us the Holy Spirit? And those who didn't, they would soon realize that this is what's happening. In the next moment, there appears in, in the room what looked like fire. And it doesn't say exactly. I, I picture it being like in the center of the room. And, and, and everyone's staring at it. 
and it says it divides into tongues. So like a, a picture, like this flaming, like little tongue flapping around, right? And it, and it goes over each one of them, fires throughout scripture, uh, and we connect it with God's presence. Maybe we think of God's uh, his purity, his holiness. I think back to Isaiah 6, where we, we were uh, not that long ago. I certainly think of, of power and, and judgment. So these flaming tongues, they went, they rested on each of them. And verse 4 says that they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was in each of them. And unlike in the Old Testament, the Spirit was not going to leave them. He would dwell in them. And Luke says that what they did next was that they began to speak in other languages. The Spirit gave them ability to speak in these other languages. They spoke languages that they did not know. Okay, so the, all of these people, they, they certainly knew Aramaic and Greek. And maybe, maybe some of them knew another language, maybe key phrases from another language. But, but what they were doing here was they were speaking real languages that they didn't know. Right? They were fluently speaking in these languages that, that, that they had not spoken before. And we find out in a, minute, in a minute that these are real languages, right? These other people will verify that they hear these Galileans speaking in their own native tongue. We'll get there in a moment. But the languages certainly represent the universality of the gospel, right? That, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved in some ways, this is like the Tower of Babel. If you remember that back in Genesis 11, this is like Tower of Babel reversed, right? God divided the people because their, their sinful pride, they were really worshipers of themselves. So he, he confused their languages. And now, now he's showing that this brand new religion that's about to explode on the scene was not simply a religion for Jewish people or Middle Eastern people, or black, or brown, or white people. God was gathering people from all over the world to be his people. And Luke zones in on the languages here, right? He's, he doesn't talk anymore about the sound of the wind. He doesn't talk anymore about the fire. He talks about the languages. Verse 5 says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, so Jewish people that were not born in Jerusalem, um, these people were dispersed o over time. They lived in different places. Uh, some think that they were here for the festival, for Pentecost. I read an estimate that there may have been up to a million people in Jerusalem, the surrounding areas, for that. But these also could be people that, that, yes, they were born elsewhere, but now they've come to live here. And, and, they, and they spoke this other native tongue because they're from somewhere else. So there's this international uh, flavor here. Uh, in verse 9, we'll read how, how, how diverse the crowd was, right? There are many different cultures. Verse 6, at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? So at this sound, I don't know if it's the wind or if it's the, the sound of them speaking in these different languages, but it got the attention of the people that are nearby, those passing by. And they're, they're thinking, well, these are Galileans speaking my native language. How is this happening? Their mind's like trying to add it up, and it just doesn't compute now, they could tell they're Galileans, and we don't know exactly how. Maybe it was their, their accent. We remember Peter, when he's uh, around the fire the night of Jesus' arrest, it's his Galilean accent that gives him away. But Galileans were uh, stereotyped as uncultured, 
uh, maybe thought of just being simple, uneducated, kind of dumb. We do this uh, unfairly to uh, some people in our country, um, people from the South, their Southern drawl. Um, uh, we, We don't, this is terrible, but we don't expect them to like say super intelligent things. Right? We, we expect a southern accent to be like, y'all fix and do something over yonder, right? Like, that's what we think. That's pretty good, huh? Um, we, we just, we, we think that way maybe about someone with a southern accent. We're blown away. We're like, you have your PhD? That's crazy. You don't sound like you should. Um, so these Galileans, that's what, kind of what people think about them. Like, how are they speaking fluently? In, in, in my language, like how are they speaking Arabic or Egyptian or whatever it is, verse 8? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Ponta, or Pontus, Asia, Phygra, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both proselytes, uh, Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. And it says this, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And so it looks like there's about maybe 15 languages represented here, from Egypt and northern Africa, modern-day Turkey, and so on. And this isn't, obviously, the entire world but, but yet we can see that it represents that the gospel mission is to all nations, right? To all peoples. I'm sure when word spread among the early believers, the mission that Jesus had given, that they were to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, maybe some of them asked, or, or at least they thought to themselves, I gotta believe you, but how? How is that even possible? that we will do that. And here God shows them that he can do whatever he wants, right? He, he can do whatever he wants in, pe- in ways that his people could never even imagine. Jesus said the spirit would come in power. He didn't explain to them that that day the power was gonna come in the form of speaking languages that they didn't know. And what the crowd uh, was hearing in their own native tongues in these different languages was they, it says they heard the mighty works of God. And this is what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit guides in truth about God. The Holy Spirit puts the spotlight on to Jesus. He helps us testify about Jesus. He helps people see the glory of Jesus. So we don't know what exactly the mighty works were that they were speaking. Maybe some, maybe some told the creation story. And talked about God's power and creativity as he made everything. Maybe some spoke of God freeing his people from slavery. I'd be shocked if some weren't speaking about Jesus, telling of his birth, speaking of his ministry. Maybe some gave a recap of the Sermon on the Mount while another's talking about him feeding the 5,000 or any number of miracles. Certainly, there's some talking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and they're, they're all hearing this in their language. And I wonder for some of these people that heard this, maybe later that day or later that week, did they come to realize that God loved them enough to give this group of people the ability to speak about him in their own language, in their own tongue that they knew and could understand, right? And this is why Bible translation work is so important, right? We, we hold this 
this book, and I don't know about you, but I have, I have more Bibles in my house than, than I, I could. I don't know. I don't know if I have 20. I have, I have a ton of Bibles. I'm a pastor. I get it. But I have a lot of Bibles. I have my phone. I don't know how many translations I have access to. Since, since I was a kid, I remember growing up in youth group, being told, like, hey, this is God's word to you, right? Or, or, or uh, this, is, this is God's letter to you. But I, I take it for granted. Think about how incredible it is for a new translation work to be finished, right? And to be able to say to someone, man, God has spoken. God speaks to you. Here is his spoken word to you. You can hear it. You can read it yourself. I would love it if someday, like if we got to send a, a linguist from our own body to go be a part of a, a translation team, translating into a language that, that does not yet have the word. So these people, they're, they're stunned by what they're hearing. Verse 12 says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. And so some of them say, what does this mean? And I think that's such a, a great question. There's a humility to that question, right? There, there's there's a, a posture of, I don't understand what's happened here. I, I don't know what this means. Right? They're saying, I'm, I'm not going to be lazy and just write this off. No, I need to look into this. They're saying, I don't know everything, which that should be obvious to every one of us, and yet it's so easy to live as if we know everything or at least enough that we don't even need to consider. By asking this question, there's this leaning into, okay, what's going on here? Yeah, so I, I love the posture of this question, what does this mean? But not everybody said that, right? Some said they're filled with new wine. They're mocking them. They see this supernatural occurrence right in front of them, right? They heard it with their own ears, and yet they're just ready to dismiss it. They make fun of this pouring out of the Spirit. And as I was reading this, I just felt bad for those people, right, to be that close to what God is doing. I mean, his church is being birthed right there, and they're just ready to throw it away. Right? They were at the event where God poured out his spirit. Man, the prophets, Joel, like he, he would have given anything to be there on that day, and here we read about these people that just mock it. How do you respond to the claims of Christianity? You mock it. Christians, how do you respond to people mocking Christianity? Matt Eldridge pointed out, as we were talking about this passage, that them mocking didn't convince Peter, oh, this crowd isn't a crowd to share with. If you were made fun of for talking about God, would you just put your tail between your legs and walk away? I might. I hope I, hope I wouldn't, but I, I wonder. I wonder if I would have thought that, okay, these mockers want nothing to do with Jesus and then just shake the dust off my feet, so to speak. Peter uses the mocking as his introduction to his first sermon, and we're just looking at the very beginning of that here. Um, we'll get to the rest of his sermon next week. But this sermon wasn't planned. He had no idea he would preach the first Christian sermon to a giant crowd. Verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Right? It's nine in the morning. Not that someone can't be drunk at nine, but most people won't be. 
Uh, this isn't like the most intelligent mocking or trash talk. Uh, when have you interacted with a drunk person that, that they seem smarter, right? I've not been around a drunk person that spoke language more fluently. Uh, it usually involves slurred speech, delayed speech, not fluency in any language, let alone a foreign language. Peter says in verse 16, he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he goes on to quote the Old Testament prophet Joel, verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter is quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it's almost exact. I want you to see if you can see what's different here. Uh, this is Joel 2, 28. He says, and it shall come to, pass, come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. So Peter nearly quotes him perfectly, but Joel writes afterwards, and Peter says instead, in the last days. Now Peter is telling those listening on that day of Pentecost and, and those listening ever since that the last days are here. The last days are a period uh, of time that began with Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and then ends with his return. Now, we don't know how long this time period is. When we read in Scripture last days, we probably just think of like a handful of days, but obviously that is not the case 2,000 years later. It reminds me uh, when I was a kid and my dad would be watching sports, I had a hard time understanding how there could be a minute 40 left on the game clock, and yet that was going to take like another 40 minutes. It just didn't make any sense to me, but, but with all the timeouts and instant replays that aren't that instant, like the game would just go on and on. So when we read last days, we, we need to think of this time period between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension and his return. And Peter's saying there, he's saying, the last days are here, right? Joel prophesied about it, and now it has come. And biblical prophecy has a way of speaking about both uh, the, the immediate future and then the, the distant future. I heard uh, Tim Mackey on one of his podcasts. He's, uh, he's a Bible project guy. Um, he, he said biblical prophecy can be like looking at a mountain range. So like pretend you're in a helicopter, right? And we're, we're looking at the, the Cascade Mountain Range. And, and you're up in the helicopter. You can see peak after peak after peak. And it looks like from that vantage point, that, that these peaks are just right one after another. But as you fly, as you get closer, you see how great the distance is from peak to peak to peak. What looked like they were right next to each other, you realize there's, there's a ton of miles between these different mountain peaks. And uh, prophecy is similar to that. Right? In Scripture, there's often this immediate re uh, realization of the prophecy, but also one that is, is, is a long ways away. Uh, Acts chapter 2.18, Peter goes on. Continuing quote, he says, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit, right? We're seeing that right here. And they shall prophesy, right? Which isn't just speaking about uh, future events, but dreams, visions. Uh, obviously, um, on this day of Pentecost, it's speaking in, in tongues. Verse 19, I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
that Peter sees that what Joel prophesied, God was bringing about. That God's spirit was poured out right there in front of their eyes. And these are the last day before the day of the Lord comes. And the day of the Lord is another phrase that we read about in scripture. It's both a day of judgment for those who have not trusted in Jesus, and it's a day of salvation for those who do. It's a day that is great and, and fearful. And I know I talked about this, I think it was back in Isaiah. Don't think like 24-hour period. It's not just a, a literal day. There, there's more that could be said there, but Peter's saying, look, right, we're in the last days. The day of the Lord is coming. I heard a pastor uh, this last week say a really sobering thought. He said, today, you're one day closer to your last day and one day closer to the end of history. That is sobering to think about. And if you're young, come on, (laughs) one day closer to my last day. I got tons of days left. If you're older, and I didn't say old, but if you're older, you know. You know that that's true. You can imagine, you you can see, like you only got so many days or, or years left. Joel's prophecy ends with this. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, that's not new. Like we, we've read that in our Old Testament. And it was clear throughout the Old Testament scriptures that in order to be saved, one must call upon the name of the Lord. And Peter, will see this starting next week in the next part of his sermon, Peter's proclaiming what that name is. The name is Jesus. Right? And Peter makes it very, very clear that if, if you want salvation, you need Jesus. This is the name that needs to be called upon to be saved. So have you called out to Jesus to save you? He's the only one that can save us from sin. And even if you aren't so sure about Jesus, I know you can see the impact of sin in your own life, right? in your relationships, in our world. Right? You and I cannot stop being selfish. Right? We can have good days, but even on our best days, we fall short of who we instinctively know we are supposed to be, right? We're short with others. We're rude. We're mean. Some of us can't even make it through a whole day without making fun of someone or, or maybe much worse. If we can at least see our sin is a problem, then I implore you, keep looking at Jesus because he's the one who can save you from the sin that so easily entangles This Jesus lived the sinless life that we know we're supposed to live, but we can't live. He laid down his life suffering and dying to be the offering for your sin. And then three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose to life and he invites you to raise to life with him. Will you call out to the Lord? Will you confess that Jesus is Lord and that you need him to save you? If you've already called out on the Lord, uh, do not be finished calling out to Jesus. The believer continuously recognizes, Jesus, I need you. I need you for everything. I am not done battling the flesh. I have not arrived, and I will not arrive until Jesus brings me home. And this is clearly for everyone. Now look at who Joel talks about. It's not just for men. It's for women. It's young and old. Christ is for anyone who will trust in him, right? All these different languages that are being spoken that day, it's, it's a picture that's for everyone. It's not just for the rich. It's for the poor. It's not just for those with academic degrees. It's, it's for those also with zero formal education. All right, this is a gospel 
that is for all ethnicities, right? There's, there's at least uh, around 15 ethnicities here mentioned by Luke. It's a picture of, of the whole world that God loves all people. Jesus loves the world, right? He isn't, I hope you know this, he isn't an American-based savior, right? Christianity um, is, is often accused of being a white religion. Man, he chose people out of the Middle East, Right? Even, even the white reformers, right, they're influenced by people from northern Africa. Right? As, you, as you read scripture, you see that God's heart is to gather people from every culture, every ethnicity to him. And our world, the last two years, our, our country, um, but really the whole world, um, is, has been very focused on racism. And it's, it, the, the conversation has been fairly constant. And, and, and there's been some good ways it's been talked about. And there's been ways that have been really destructive and, and really divisive, too. We need to think biblically uh, about this sin. Uh, I think it's uh, Vody Bachman and, uh, and Shailen. They, they both talk about we need to use biblical language. We need to think in biblical categories. Uh, Shailen uh, and Vody both uh, don't like the term racism because it, it's, it's so loaded and undefined. And, and they say, no, we need, to, we need to look at what Scripture says. So Shailen, I won't give you everything here, but he, he divides it into six categories, all based around, eth- uh, he uses the word ethnic. He says uh, ethnic hatred, ethnic idolatry, ethnic pride, ethnic favoritism, ethnic oppression, ethnic neglect. His, his book, New uh, Reformation, is really, really helpful. And he uses this word ethnic because it's the language of Scripture. When we see nations in the New Testament, the word is ethne. So there's, there's no doubt what we see is God is uniting people. He will unite all ethnes to himself. Right? He, he's going to bring about this thing that the world wants but cannot get because only Jesus can do it. The world is right. There are problems. Right? There are great sins between all of us. And Jesus is the only one who can save us from all of our problems. So again, I ask, have you called on the name of the Lord? I don't just mean years ago at that camp or that church service. But do you see that you still need Jesus? I don't know how the book of Acts is impacting you. I know we're just a few weeks into it. But as I'm saturating myself in this book, what's jumping off the page for me so far or one thing I should say is that I need God. I've been driven to pray way more frequently. I don't know how many conversations I've been in the last two weeks where, where I, it's like I almost get sick of talking with this other person because I'm like, we just need to talk to God together. Right? We, just, we, need, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, to fill us, to work in our hearts, to convict of sin, to open hearts to the gospel, to give people ears to hear the gospel. Uh, and I'm excited. I, I know last week's passage had uh, quite a bit to do with, with prayer. It came up a, a lot in that part of Acts 1. I heard a couple different people were talking about, like, man, we need more prayer in our church. And I, I don't know if they were talking about a prayer group or not, but, but I was excited to hear that because I've been, I've been praying for a bit now that God would start that, that, that there would be more of a, of a prayer emphasis, but it wouldn't just be like the staff and the elders and me up here saying we need to pray, but, but that there would be this, this grassroots thing within our church. So we, we look at God's word and go, yeah, we, we need to be people that, that pray. So I, I'm excited for that. Um, 
uh, around New Year's, uh, Priscilla Gilbert, uh, she emailed me and said, hey, I want to grow in prayer. Like, do you have a book recommendation? So she started reading this, this book, um, but then emailed a, a group of us and, and said, reading this book on my own is okay, but it'd be so much better if I was doing this with, with other people and, and, and praying together and discussing this. So I asked her, like, hey, can we tell the whole church? And she said yes, which is why I'm saying it now. So the, the book is Tim Keller's book, and uh, the, the title is brilliant. It's called Prayer. Yeah, it's really, really good. I guess when you're like, when you've written that many awesome books, you can just throw anything out there. Um, anyway, it's called Prayer. It's a good book. Uh, so if you're interested, Priscilla's right there. You want to wave, wave your hand. So Priscilla, I think Ryan, her husband, they're going to read it. The plan, I believe, is pretty simple. Read the book. Uh, get together, whoever wants to, a couple times, discuss. Um, I, I assume that they're going to pray together. It would be pretty ironic if they didn't pray together, so I'm guessing that's the plan. Um, but but as, as I've been immersed in the book of Acts, I just can't ignore that these early believers knew they needed God. Right? They, they needed God. If they were going to be his witnesses, they needed God. If they were going to be the church, if they were going to live as God's people, they needed God. Right between the ascension and Pentecost, there's just this handful of days, right? Ten, ten days between seeing Jesus ascend and then the Spirit coming. And we all know that saying that absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? They had ten days to feel what it was like to not have Jesus right there. And, and then now at Pentecost, they're given the Spirit. Not just this one-time thing where you have the Spirit now and, and then you don't. No, the Spirit was going to indwell in the believers, right? He's not going anywhere. Peter or Paul later will explain that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, right? That after after Pentecost, person comes to Christ, the Spirit indwells the believer. The believers, we are never alone. We're never without the presence of God in us, right? There are times where God might feel distance, distant, but He is there. He is with you. God has given you the helper your counselor, your teacher. He's given you the one who reminds you the truth of the word. He will help you speak about Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit, puts the spotlight on Jesus. I'll end with this. Uh, the other part of Acts that just jumps out at me is, is I cannot ignore that the world needs Jesus and his people are to be the ones that tell the world. My youngest son uh, started a new basketball team this week. We went to the first practice, and he's young enough that, like, all the parents still stay at practice. Um, and driving there, I'm realizing that there's going to be some parents I know, a bunch of parents I don't know. I'm not naturally this, like, hey, I want to go meet people guy, right? Like, I, I don't know. As I get older, the more introverted I, I realize I am. But I also realize that, that during these first couple practices, it's going to be the easiest. It's going to be the most natural for me to put myself out there. And, and try and meet other parents. Because if I don't do it in the first couple weeks, it's just going to get harder and harder for me, and I'll just stick with the people I know and I'm comfortable with. So we get to practice. The coach does, like, this little parents meeting real quick, goes over expectations, wraps up the meeting, and, and, and the parents all kind of disperse along the, the edge of the gym. And I pray real quick. I'm like, all right, Lord, help me. And I go and I go and meet this other dad I don't know. And uh, we talk for a bit, and then the conversation kind of stalls out. Not awkward, but it's just kind of done. So I see another dad, not too far away. I'm like, okay, Lord, will you help me? And I go and talk to this guy, I introduce myself. And at first, we're just talking about our kids. We're talking about basketball. We're talking about where he grew up. It, like, just kind of surface-level stuff. And, and, and then I don't even know how we turn the corner, but suddenly he's talking to me about his wife's cancer and, and that she just started chemo treatment. 
And we're talking about what it's like to be the husband and, and uh, when your wife's battling cancer, what, what it's like for, for their kids. And I didn't get in that conversation to talk about Jesus yet, but I've been, I've been praying, Lord, will you give me the opportunity? Like, will you help me remember his name? Will you help me, help me to talk to him about you? And if we weren't in Acts right now, I don't even know if I would have even had the mindset to go do that. Right? I, I knew other parents there. I, I could have spent the whole time talking with people that are, are, are friends or at least on the way to being friends. I would have been much more comfortable with them. How is God stirring you through the book of Acts? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we, we thank you that, that we have your word in our own language. And we have so many excellent translations, God. And I thank you that we can come to this book and that we're not on our own trying to read this book. But the Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. You illuminate this book to us. You illuminate the, the word of God to us. And Lord, we pray. We're just asking that you would teach us, that you would change us, Lord. Uh, I pray that, that as we as we leave these doors every Sunday, that we, we'd be different than when we walked in just, just an hour or two before, Lord. God, grow us as your people. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that, that walk in step with you, Holy Spirit, that we'd be a people that, that, that might think, God, I don't know how you're going to do that, but, but that we'll trust you and go where you say to go and say what you say to say, Lord. God, would we be a people that are just hungry for the world to know that the name of Jesus is the name that needs to be called upon for salvation? We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.